Yet God, we come before you this morning and we rejoice. We rejoice that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And God, I thank you that we could even meet together this morning and rejoice together as a church family, Lord. And I thank you for each person who is here. God, I thank you even for those who've come through the door for the first or the the second time to, to join in with our family. God, we are thankful. We are thankful that they've joined us this morning. God, I trust you have a message for us. This morning, Lord, as I have spent some time preparing it this week and and praying, Lord, I just get the sense that there's something here for each one of us. Lord, as we think about and we we ponder on the resurrection, Lord, we, we run through a whole year, 364 other days where we may not think about the resurrection. But today, God, we're here and we're going to think about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to ponder it. We're going to look at proof. God, I trust you have something to speak to each one of us in that. God, I I ask, as the scripture says, that you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us hearts to understand. God, even that we could walk out of here changed people this morning. Lord, we lift up the time. Lord, I pray that you would be speaking. Lord, it would not be me, but it would be you speaking. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we are going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what is resurrection? I have a summary. I did this. my clicker on here. I did this last week. I talked about this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I think is an excellent summary of what a Christian believes. For I delivered to you of first importance, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, on Easter morning, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so there is a summary, I think, of what's going on. There is this crucial point, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus coming back from the dead. This is either a true and a historical event, or it is not. It can't kind of be one or the other. It either is history or it is not history. It either happened or it did not happen. So are we left to just blind faith and and hope that it happened or think that it happened? Well, I think it's really neat. There is proof that the resurrection happened. And we're going to examine some of that this morning, but I think before I get into that, when we ask that question, is there proof of the resurrection of Jesus? I think it's very interesting that in Acts it tells us that Jesus himself didn't just show up and say, hey, I'm a ghost, or anything like that. What does it say? In verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted to make it absolutely clear he had come back from the dead. And so if Jesus himself said there is proof, 
then we can find proof as well. And so why is it important? You might say, okay, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why do we need to have proof that this was a historical event? Are you guys familiar with the game Jenga? You guys ever play that game? We play games in our house. We actually don't own that game, but you all know it, right? And here's a picture of Jenga. The Christian faith is like Jenga. I don't know if you can see in this picture, it's all balanced on one block. And the Christian faith is balanced upon the resurrection of Jesus. If it's not there, it all falls. If it's not there, it all falls. And so we need to examine it and ask the crucial question. Because if not, the Apostle Paul says there in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still living in your sins. We had better not waste our lives and our energy if this is not true. Amen? And so it's interesting that the resurrection of Jesus has been examined probably more than any other event in history. And there's so much information about that today. And so uh, if I was going to say, hey, let's have, a, let's have a, a message about the proof that there is for the resurrection, we could be here for days. I could be talking about it, but we're not. So what I've said is, okay, I'm going to talk about proof today. I just want to give you five simple proofs. And they're not the only five proofs. I'm not going to be comprehensive in talking about these proofs. If you're interested, there's all kinds of information I can point you in the right direction. I'd be glad to talk to you about more of why I'm convinced the resurrection is a historical event that we need to deal with. So today we're just going to look at five proofs. Five proofs of the resurrection. And so here's the first one. Jesus was killed. What are you talking about? Jesus was killed? Well, yeah, that's the whole story, right? Well, there have been many skeptics throughout the centuries who've said, Jesus didn't really die. Jesus wasn't really killed. He just swooned. Or he just kind of went unconscious, and then later he sort of woke up from being unconscious, and he walked around. So he didn't actually die. For there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. There has to be a death. And so we see the passage in John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So the Bible tells us Jesus died. Well, did he die or not? Did Jesus actually die as was reported? Well, a few reasons why I think that there's proof that that happened. The first one... We have four gospel accounts, four separate accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one reports the same story. Each one reports that Jesus died. Four independent sources report Jesus died. Not just one, but four. As if that was not enough, we have external accounts that are not part of the Bible. Other historical accounts report that Jesus died. I'm going to show you just a few of them here. A quote from Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was a secular guy. But he said Jesus suffered the extreme penalty. And he was talking about crucifixion. He suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He said Pilate condemned Jesus He condemned him to be crucified. Even the Jewish Talmud, which is a historical document, says Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve. 
And so here we have these external sources that confirm, yes, Jesus did die. Well, then if that wasn't enough, let's think at skeptics. What do the skeptics say? There's scholars who spend a lot of time thinking about this, and skeptical scholars agree that Jesus did die. That he didn't just faint, he didn't just swoon. Here's a couple of them. One of them, John Dominic Crossan, a historian, he says that he that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. There's enough evidence to point that, yes, Jesus did die. James Taylor, a professor at the University of North Carolina, says, I think we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, he was truly dead. So even the skeptics agree that Jesus died. But we can also just think about it rationally. And I think we can be pretty certain that the Romans were certain that he died. Well, why, why is that? The Roman Empire was a killing machine. They knew how to kill people. We see in this picture how it worked. They'd line them up, put them on crosses, and kill them. They would burn them. They would do all different kinds of things. The Romans knew how to kill people. It's highly unlikely that this killing machine would let somebody slip through and not die when that was their job. The Romans had one job. It was to kill Jesus. And the evidence points to the fact that they got it done. The conclusion is, yes, Jesus did die. Jesus did die at the hands of the Romans. For there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. Jesus died. The second proof is that the disciples believed it. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead. We see that in John chapter 20. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus had died. Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Do the disciples really believe that Jesus was alive? Do they really believe it? Well, there's evidence. There's good evidence that they actually believed it. Paul, the apostle, who was not one of these guys, he was not there in the room. He wasn't with them. We're going to talk about him more in a minute. But Paul testified about the disciples' faith. Paul was not there, but he knew these disciples personally. He says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul knew what the disciples saw. And he testified, yep. They said they saw it. They believed that they saw Jesus alive. See, this wasn't just the disciples saying, oh yeah, it happened, it happened. But Paul saying, yep, it happened, guys. It's like a corroborating eyewitness from a trial. Beyond Paul, we have early church writings that confirm this fact. The disciples did believe this. This isn't some legend that developed over time. No, the disciples actually believed that. That passage we started with from 1 Corinthians 15 has been dated to within five years of the resurrection. And it's very clear and it's very concise. They call it a creed. Creeds that are that concise don't develop in a legendary way over time. 
We also have sermons recorded of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks about the resurrection. In Acts 13, Paul speaks about the resurrection. These sermons are reliably attributed to Peter and Paul. They don't think they're from someone else. They don't think they're from later. Scholars agree they came from those men at that time. They're communicating clearly something they believed. Furthermore, the early church had writings. These writings, four of them were the Gospels, like we said at the beginning. Four eyewitness accounts of what happened. Those four eyewitness accounts were written within 70 years of the resurrection. There was not enough time for legend to infect it. And furthermore, beyond the Gospels, the church fathers wrote in several sources and mentioned that they believe and the disciples believe that the resurrection was a truthful event. So the evidence is consistent. It reports that Jesus did rise from the dead and there's no variance. But there's more than just, well, people said it. What did the disciples do? The disciples' lives after the resurrection demonstrated that they believed it was true. Well, what do I mean? The book of Acts records that the disciples suffered for their conviction that Jesus rose from the dead. Additional early writings, there's at least 11 sources that document that these disciples suffered and died. They were murdered. It's recorded in history. You say, so what? People die for their beliefs all the time. People die for their beliefs. But liars make poor martyrs. And if they were lying and they did not believe this had happened, they wouldn't have died for it. Who would die for a lie if they knew it was a lie? The disciples were there. If anyone knew it was a lie, it was those guys. And yet they chose to suffer and die for it. So the conclusion is that the disciples were absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't making it up. They weren't faking it. Now I mentioned we talk about Paul. That would be the third proof is that Paul was converted. So the passage here, Paul in his own words from Galatians chapter 1, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God was pleased to reveal his son Jesus Christ to me. A resurrected Jesus Christ comes to Paul. And you say, so what? So so what if a religious man was convinced of the resurrection? Well, Paul was no ordinary man. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul started out, he didn't start out with these guys, he didn't start out in their council. He started out violently opposed to this teaching. He was opposed to Jesus Christ. He said it in his own words there in Galatians chapter 1. He says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was opposed to Jesus Christ. But Paul converted because he personally encountered Jesus Christ. We see that in Acts chapter 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus and he's going on his way to persecute and kill people who believe that the resurrection happened. He's so upset about it, he doesn't want anyone else to even believe in it. He's on his way to take these people out. And Jesus shows up and Paul says, Who are you, Lord? 
He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And he does a 180. He goes from persecuting and killing and to trying to destroy people who believe in that to preaching it and trying to get other people to join in and believe in that as well. It's quite a testimony. But it goes on. Paul furthermore wasn't just converted. He ended up suffering and he ended up dying because of this faith. Paul had nothing to gain. He was not a friend of Jesus who just hoped this was going to be true. Again, he was an enemy of Jesus. He thought Jesus wasn't just some random guy. He thought he was a false Messiah who was going to be drawing people away from the truth. So Paul had nothing to gain except suffering and death for converting. And that's what he did. Paul was converted because he was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. He was not faking it. In addition to Paul, we have James. James was converted. Well, who was James? You see the passage in 1 Corinthians 15? It says, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Well, which James was this? James, that we're talking about here, he was the half-brother of Jesus. Does that mean they had shared the same mother? Of course, Go back to the Christmas story and talk about where Jesus came from. James was the brother of Jesus. If anybody knew what was going on with Jesus, it was his family. And James knew about it. James knew about it. And he didn't believe Jesus initially. We see in Acts or in Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, it tells us that none of Jesus' brothers, he had multiple brothers like James, none of them believed in Jesus. While Jesus was alive, he was walking around, he was performing miracles, he was teaching about the gospel, the good news, about the scriptures, he was doing all this great stuff, and none of his brothers believed him. That would have been really, really embarrassing in that day, in that culture, for a rabbi, a spiritual teacher to walk around in his family and be like, that guy's crazy. But that's where James was. James was a skeptic of what Jesus was teaching. And he didn't believe Jesus initially. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to his brother. He appeared to James. And then what happened? James became a key church leader. James also did a 180 he changed his view from uh, my, it's my crazy brother to this is the son of God who's come back from the dead. James was converted. And later, James died. James gave up his life as a murder for his faith. Again, liars make terrible murders. And this death of James, it's not recorded in the Bible, but it's recorded elsewhere in the histories of Josephus and Clement and others. And so we conclude conclude that James, who was a skeptic, he was converted because he was convinced of the resurrection. If anyone would know otherwise, it would have been Jesus' brother. And so our fifth and final proof this morning that we're going to talk about is that the tomb was empty. Well, of course it was empty, right? But no, it makes a difference for there to be someone. Again, 
For there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. Also for there to be a resurrection, the tomb has to be empty. Was it empty? I believe it was. We see in Luke 24, 12, it records that Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. The Bible tells us that the tomb was empty. So how does that empty tomb prove that Jesus rose from the dead? I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one is what we might call the Jerusalem factor. What do we mean by the Jerusalem factor? Well, if you were going to make up a story that someone had risen from the dead, you were going to have something fantastical, probably the easiest thing to do in that culture and that time would be to go somewhere else and say that something happened in a faraway place. And it would be very difficult to verify. So it would be like, oh, this thing, Jesus was executed in Jerusalem. We're going to go to Rome. We're going to go to Athens. We're going to go to Carthage. We're going to go somewhere else. We're going to stand up there and say, Jesus rose from the dead over there in Jerusalem where you can't really verify it because it's far away. But they didn't do that. Jesus was executed, and they began to proclaim that message right there in the same place in Jerusalem. And that obviously made the authorities very upset. The Jewish authorities were like, you can't say this. We're really upset about it. But what would be the easiest way for those authorities to disprove it and wipe it out? It would be to roll out the body. Open up the tomb, pull out the body. What are you guys talking about? Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Here's his body right here. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And so that brings us to the second element of this proof is that there is attestation from enemies of Jesus that the tomb was empty. Right? Instead of bringing the body out, we see in Matthew 28 and also in the histories of Tertullian and of Justin the Martyr that the authorities said, no, 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 the body was stolen. How convenient. What a convenient way to explain an empty tomb. Say, oh, the body was stolen. That is an implicit admission that the tomb was empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, they would have pulled out the body. As we saw last week, they stole it is not a really good explanation. Recall there was a gigantic stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb and wedged in place so that it would take several strong men to roll this stone up a hill to get it out of the way. Then they hired SEAL Team 6, which was the Roman guard, and they came and stood guard there for a couple days and say, no one's stealing this body. Right? You don't want to mess with the guys who are experts at killing. You want to do that. And then as if that wasn't enough, the Roman government went and sealed the tomb and put their stamp on it and said, if you break this, you have to answer to the full force of the Roman government. We said last week it was the Fort Knox of tombs. There was no stealing the body. It was not going to happen. And yet that's what they claimed. And today, because of all of that, Scholars on all sides of the issue universally reject the idea that the body was stolen. And so our conclusion, our conclusion is that Jesus' tomb was indeed empty. So let's put all of this together into a summary. First, you have the man Jesus, he was dead. You have the people who claimed to see him alive, they, they truly believed it. And they went on and they lived it out and they gave up their lives and they suffered great hardships. And there was a man who was his enemy. An enemy changed his mind about Jesus and did a 180. Ended up giving up his life because of that belief. And then we had a skeptical brother, his family member, someone else who would know differently. 
He changed his mind and he gave up his life to believe that this had happened. And then finally we know that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. And so what is our natural conclusion? The natural conclusion is that Jesus rose from the dead. So what should I do with this? Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, it's a great thing. Well, people don't go around rising from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. We have to come to grips with this. What is the point? What is the purpose? Why did God do this? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, Jesus himself told us in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said this. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did this to save us, to save me and to save you. So what are we supposed to do with this? This verse gives us a choice. It says, whoever believes. I can either believe or I cannot believe. That is a choice set before each of us. I came across this quote this week, which I think sums it up well. It's from a pastor named John Hopler. It's on the screen, and I'll read it to you. He said this. He said, Mankind has a condition. We are all going to die. Death is certain to all humans because of our sin. Many religions and philosophies promise us a way to live a better life now or later. But the leaders of these religions, philosophies, do not claim that they died and rose from the dead. Nor do most claim that their religion will result in their followers rising from the dead. If they cannot cure death, why waste our time with these religions or philosophies? But Jesus Christ is unique. He died and then came back to life. He rose from the dead as the first of many who will also rise from the dead. He promised this in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not only did he claim to overcome death, he actually did so in reality. His deeds matched his words. If God raised him from the dead, certainly he will raise us from the dead as well. I think that's a great summary of what's so important about the resurrection. If the resurrection is a true event, then there's something that we need to do to respond to it, which is to believe. And so I have this little diagram I'll share with you. I think kind of pictures, just very basically, very simply, any of us, I think even these little kids who are up here this morning, they could understand what's painted as a picture there in John 3.16, and it's this. I have me, and I have God. And there's a separation between me and God, and it's caused by my sin. I can't get past my sin. My sin separates me from God, and that's a problem. But God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world 
And we know that Jesus came and he died on a cross. And as we talked about this morning, he rose from the dead and he defeated death. And what that does is that creates a path for me to get to God, Jesus Christ. I can have a right relationship with God. I can get to spend eternity with him. Not by doing a bunch of good stuff. Not by thinking the right thoughts. Not by changing my behavior. Simply by believing. By believing. Well, what does does believing mean? To believe really means two things. It means first, to realize I have broken God's laws. God set up the laws about what's sin and what's not. I might like that. I might not. But God set it up and I've broken those laws. Furthermore, I realize I can't repair that damage. I can't do it. I can't get to God by what I want to do or what I think I can do or my my thoughts or anything. I can't get there. Only Jesus can restore me to God because He died and rose again. The second thing that belief means is that I've got to receive this free gift. I've got to receive it by placing my faith and trust in Him alone. And that's it. And some of you may be here today and you go, I've never done that. I've never placed my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone. I'm still trying to work my way to God. I know I have this sin. The sin separates me from God. And I think if I just do enough good stuff, or I I show up to church occasionally, or I'm kind to somebody, or I I do serve somewhere, or maybe I don't think bad thoughts, or, or I just sort of limit my sin, I can get to God. The Bible tells us you can't. There's only one way to get to God and that's through Jesus Christ because of what he did on Easter morning and so let's all pray together here you can bow your head and and close your eyes and prayer is just really talking to God and so as we we talk to God here we each can just talk to him in the quietness of our own hearts as we talk to him and we, we think about think about salvation, we think about the resurrection, we realize that we can't get to God. And if you are here this morning and you've never placed your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, you've never received the free gift of salvation, you've just spent your life and your your time and your hours trying to get to God, trying to be right with God of your own accord, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to. And on the screen is, is where each of us are praying. On, our screen, on the screen is this prayer that you could just pray in the quietness of your own heart. You could just say, God, I changed my mind about Jesus. I recognize Him as your Son, and I, I changed my mind about myself. I cannot get to heaven on my own. I know that I am a sinner. I know there's that gap that separates me and you, God. And I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the grave. You defeated death. I now invite you to come into my heart and my life as my Lord and Savior. That's a very simple prayer that you could pray. And and Lord, I just trust that you're moving in the lives of even people who are here this morning. As you've continued to move in my life, Lord, and I I think back to my history and my past of 
how I came to know you at a young age, and yet I somehow I missed this truth. This truth of believing. And I treated Christianity as a religion, as a, as a way of, of works that I could get closer to you. And God, I'm reminded again this morning that there's nothing I can do to improve my relationship with you. All I have to do is receive that free gift of salvation. Lord, I thank you for doing that in my life and the lives of others here. Lord, as we think about the the resurrection, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for defeating death. We thank you for the free gift of salvation. And we rejoice that you've made a way that we could be right with you in this life. Get to spend eternity with you in heaven. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.